I'm Alex Mozed. You're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book Modern Monopolies. We have a riveting series of uh, a lineup today, uh, starting off with our friends over at Facebook. Facebook buys video shopping startup for Marketplace. And what you'll see in, in this highlight and a couple of the other highlights that we're going to cover on today's show is that we're seeing a lot more investment uh, or emphasis on the role of video when it comes to some of these key tech monopoly players. Uh, so Facebook bought this company company called uh, Packaged with no E, and it's small. Five-person startup um, was building a shopping aspect for YouTube videos. Basically, ability for you to buy items and stuff while you're watching a video. Right. And it's a live stream shopping capability. Live stream shopping. And when they interviewed him, when they, when they founded it in 2017, he said, think of us as a reimagination of QVC or the home shopping network. Right. So um, maybe a couple of weeks ago, right before the break, we were highlighting that over $4 billion worth of goods in China right. were sold through Alibaba and, and other of the product marketplaces in China via their live streaming um influencer shopping capability yeah right and, and like the kardashians launched a product did a live stream and then you, you could buy it you also have stuff you wouldn't expect though like you have hundreds of thousands of farmers selling local produce on live stream on taobao live and that kind of stuff as well i think the stuff you would expect like fashion and jewelry and beauty products are kind of the leading things but They've also got this pretty strong community of people selling all kinds of other goods on uh, live streaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, I mean, shopping while watching TV has been a big thing for a long time. Right. And this is just the new version of it. It's interesting. Uh, what, what did what did QVC buy uh, Zulily? QVC bought Zulily for $2.4 billion in 2015. Liberty Interactive owns QVC and Zulily is kind of like a, kind of like a discount online retailer, not a marketplace. Um, they are, I think, more of just kind of like an e-commerce right. provider. So it's not as open um, as you would expect, where, where these are much more open in the sense that I can go on, I can do content i can create content for the platform and then i can also sell stuff right. alongside of that whereas what qvc did was kind of the linear version of this right it was hey now people you people buy products from our our tv show and they can call up this now they can just buy stuff linearly online that right. we have in stock yeah yeah and then they i'm sure they cross promote them between the two yes there's also some synergies there but yeah it's definitely not embracing the that marketplace model yes how do i Open up an ecosystem, let people create content and sell stuff and do both of those things together. Um, and now I'm the middleman. I'm the intermediary. We're seeing Facebook do that. Obviously, Instagram has been doing that. We've covered how Instagram Amazon's doing it, too. They have this Amazon Live, uh, which is exactly what you'd expect. Basically, people come on selling Amazon products similar to kind of like a QVC type format. Damn, look, I can buy stuff. I can buy this little. What is this like a neck massager, shoulder massager? Oh, it's for my posture. Posture. Okay. And no, I'm not going to buy this. Thank you. But um, yeah, boom. Look at this. So I think they have some catching up to do, right? I mean, I don't think you can really go and 
if I'm one of these large uh, incumbent, let's say, TV shopping channels, uh, I mean, we, we saw QVC make a multi-billion dollar acquisition, but you can't go build this stuff from scratch. I mean, you're even seeing the big boys like a Facebook, even though this company was small, they only had five people. You've got to go buy at right. this point. It's it's too Particularly late. On the, the, if you're thinking about live stream shopping capability and then starting to get third party creators, not just selling products, but also creating content for you, I think that. Uh, there's certainly areas either on the technology side or on the network side, you would need to look at making potentially some acquisitions. Yeah. And probably demand, right? Because, you know, if right. I'm a TV station, that's my demand is coming through the TV the channel. How right. do I get the digital demand that then I can use to attract the producers that are creating content and selling stuff. And you can try and convert some of that demand from the analog TV to your digital property. But I think you also need a slightly different audience when you're talking about digital property versus analog yep. uh, tend to be more of a millennial type yep. audience that would be doing some of that slightly different audience. That to me would kind of be like the dry powder that we talk about on the show where it's like this is an intrinsic asset that if you are a TV station, you have this latent demand, you will be able to channel some of that to a digital right. property, not all of it, maybe not even half of it, but some of it. Which could then justify for you to go make an acquisition at a much higher multiple than you'd probably be comfortable doing otherwise. Uh, and then try to leverage demand, digital demand that you that you have elsewhere. It doesn't have to be a platform business already. Could be a, a, a linear business that has digital demand that now you're gonna open it up and kind of right. platformize it. Um, but yeah, you gotta get you gotta get playing ball and quick because uh, yeah, the the big boys are here. And they're only going to put more and more fuel on the fire. As we've seen in China, this is the way things go. China's clearly led the way on this, right. as they have in many other platform spaces. Um, and and now the U.S. is picking up in in, in this arena. Right. So, I think more broadly, I'd call it kind of social commerce. But I think video mm -hmm. commerce is going to be yes. a, a huge part of that. Yes, definitely. We see Snapchat going into a little bit of a different direction, but still innovating with live and with video. Um, they've launched Bitmoji TV, a personalized cartoon show. They acquired Bitstrips back in 2016 for $64 million. And they've used, and they're now kind of using this. You can now make an interactive show with your own characters. And they have kind of like predefined uh, segments and things like this that you can do. And you can stitch together different sequences. Um, but they've been investing a lot of money into... This technology, um, Bitmoji stories, and uh, and yeah. and kind of working away at this. Basically, what they're trying to do, the way I would qualify this is, how do I let my community of producers, of content creators, to give them new tools and new unique ways to create content that's unique to Snapchat uh, and not to any of the other large content platforms, where now what you see is we're doing this where we're putting our content on a variety of different uh, social media content platforms, right. but it's all pretty much the same content. You're just doing it to get distribution. How do you get unique content specific to the platform? Right. Um, which is a differentiator and kind of ha has more of a, that, a home in that, that arena. That kind of multi-network thing that the producers do is less of an issue if you're huge like YouTube and you've got to be there because all the demand is there. Is a much bigger issue if you're smaller and need to figure out 
how am I going to continue to grow to compete with a YouTube or compete with an Instagram or a Facebook the way Snapchat is? Yeah. So that, that unique content and that unique inventory is definitely important for them. Yeah. To you're out. innovating on supply. Right? And we've spoken about just the importance of supply throughout the evolution of many of, of every platform, right. but particularly when you get to scale and, and if you're the underdog, like a Snapchat, how do you innovate on supply? Because the other guys have demand, they've got right. demand locked in, which means the supply, you have much more leverage on the supply than say a Snapchat does. The challenge for Snapchat is if I'm doing something like this, what, how do I prevent basically becoming the testing ground for Facebook, which is kind of what they've done in the past, which is they test something out, some things work, some things doesn't. And then when something works really well, Facebook just copies it. Uh, so I, I think from them, how do you start to engage more of the supply? I think one of the things that creators complained about on Snapchat is like there wasn't really good ways to get audience metrics and you know focus on engagement and actually build an audience and make a living on Snapchat the way there has been on Instagram, for example, or on YouTube uh, with the ad split and things there. Yeah, so the discovery is very getting, different. Getting uh, more and more ways to get in deeper with that creator ecosystem, I think, would definitely be... Uh, I think Snapchat's been a little behind on that, but I think they definitely need to continue to do that. Yeah, I mean, where where Snapchat lost me was when they decided to, it used to be, what, three years ago-ish? You could only post to Snapchat if you were taking the photo or the video via the Snapchat app. Right, now they let you save it to the camera roll and export it. And, yeah. yeah. Once they made that shift and they said, we're going to let you upload content from your camera roll. I, I think it was a short term move to try and get more supply, get more, make it easier for you to put content into the app. But when they made that shift to me, they were about to cross this threshold where, where Snapchat would become the default uh, camera app on your phone. They would replace, I found myself um, taking photos in Snapchat's app. Uh, even though it was worse quality, the camera sucked compared to your Apple camera right. app. Um, the quality sucked and it was pixelated and grainy and, but I'd still do it because otherwise I couldn't post it on Snapchat. Right. Um, and then when they got rid of that, then that to me was the beginning of the end or, or the beginning of their down spiral um, where they probably made that move out of desperation. But I felt like if they had stuck with that, they would have been able to bring about a a user behavior change. And it's hard to quantify that. It's a very kind of qualitative thing, but a user behavior change where your default camera app is now Snapchat, not the Apple or, right, or well, they Android call them, They call themselves a camera company. Right. So that would make sense if that was the goal. So that went, went, went away. Anyway, they're back to the supply innovation. They bought another company here called AI Factory. This was just announced a couple of days ago for $166 million, which is now going to let you make cooler cameos and, and all that kind of stuff. Basically, um, you can put your head into a moving image and have it kind of like, I would call a kind of mild version of a deep fake, make it move in conjunction with the kind of moving image. Uh, and it's something I think they've been they've been integrating already and uh basically they were acquiring this company that they'd they'd uh, been working on this feature with uh, it, this one didn't seem that exciting to me i kind of like the bitmoji thing a little bit more um i felt like you could kind of already do this like with the iphone um and and like those little emoticon like things where i can be like a monkey and make faces and i don't know maybe i'm not understanding it but um yeah so 
But anyway, I like some of the moves that Snapchat's trying to make. Bitmoji more than AI factory. But yeah, you got it makes sense to innovate on the supply side and try and get more traction there. Um to get just more unique engagement that could only happen within Snapchat uh, versus these other, just replicating the same content across other platforms. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Amazon, this was now in July of 2019. Amazon uh, quietly launches Amazon Commercial, a private label for business customers. Um, Apparently now the janitorial and sanitation distributors are now starting to take notice of this. Right. Here is the Amazon commercial store. You can kind of see, right? I can get facial tissue, paper towels, toilet paper. All these are very basic products. A multi-multi-billion dollar industry. You can now get it at, you know, am low Amazon prices and their white label products. Clearly just what you're seeing is that they're just gearing up for war and going after all in a, in, a, in a very clear pattern, just marching down to all of these kind of pack and ship, commoditized type of product categories uh, in B2B distribution. And they're just layering in all of the typical tactics uh, that we saw them do on the B2C side, bringing that to B2B. Right. It's only going to continue. And it's working. Because now what you're hearing is you're hearing the B2B distribution industry clamor. And, you know, initially they kind of ignore it. And now you hear it rumbling and saying, oh, well, you know. It went from market. Amazon will never work in B2B, whatever, to, oh, no, now Amazon's in our industry and they're competing with us directly with their first party selling in addition to the marketplace. And now we start to take notice and get worried. And look, it's not, it's not like a, a novel strategy to make a white label product. Distributors have been making white label products and, and retailers, and retailers for, yep. I don't know, probably over a hundred years, right? Or I don't know, decades. So, but the problem is when you have an Amazon branded white label products versus fill in the blank, you know, XYZ B2B distributor product, and you look at the brand power of Amazon versus that distributor, the brand power is very strong. And you've basically now commoditized the value of that product literally the definition of a white label product and it's Amazon's brand versus your fill in the blank B2B distributor, white label brand. Right. And they have the marketplace that it sells through uh, and you're competing with them for demand. It's, it's not a good position to be in. Right. And that's actually where a lot of the B2B distributors would make a lot of their margin was on the white label products. That's why you see all the retailers right. trying to push their own products on, you know, on a shelf in the store. Um, Cause that is where they get good margin from. So Yes, very interesting, pretty predictable. This train's only going to continue to keep on chugging. So, well, let's complete the cycle to TikTok. This story here, a little bit, you know, a couple months ago, why Facebook passed on buying the app that became TikTok. That Basically, was Musical.ly, right? Yeah. Is that what, is that how you, That's not Musical.ly? A, a Musical.ly, yeah. Okay. Musical.ly? <laughs> That's how it's spelled. <laughs> so my incorrect pronunciation. Um, so anyways, a recap. TikTok was this thing called Musical.ly, according to Nick, or otherwise old, known other as old people. Musical.ly. Uh, ByteDance acquired it for $800 million. Story is kind of interesting. It goes into some of the background on uh, Zuckerberg was initially uh, 
hesitant to buy it. It was Kevin Systrom, founder of Instagram, who said, hey, we got to look at this. We should go buy right. this, um, which is kind of interesting, right? Like when Zuck was really in the game, had his ear much closer to the ground, he obviously knew I got to go buy Instagram. Then you buy Instagram and the guy who founded Instagram says, hey, you should go buy Musical.ly, right? You know, when you're really in the game like that and you can see the up and coming trend, you know. So Systrom knew um, Zuckerberg, basically the the growth was slowing a little bit. Um, he wasn't too hot on it. Then apparently he actually met with the founders um, and warmed much more to it. Uh, ultimately what the article says is his big hesitation was that it had a lot of Chinese stuff going on with it in the sense that a, they had Chinese users, B, they had Chinese servers, right? And he could foresee this being a big problem. And he conceptually, as we've covered many times on the show, will not put data servers and store data and, and do business in China as, as his own decision. Um, even though. You know, if he wants to go into China, he has to basically comply with the rules and doesn't want to do it. He's one of the few tech billionaire founders that I think has has not really ever wavered or ever really kind of been. Well, he he did learn Chinese, so I'm not sure if I'd give him. That's true. He did learn Chinese. There was definitely some intentions there. Did weird stuff like kill animals for a year and eat all of he would only eat meat that like he killed or something with his own hands. You know about that? Yes. Yeah, you go like kill chickens and anyway. Um so uh anyway, he had some hesitation. He liked the founders, then he warmed up to it, and then ultimately he the the China stuff scared him off. Um I think rightly so. Yeah, I think given the regulatory environment, obviously it's hard to predict, you know, looking back a couple of years, but where we are today, I think that would definitely be a hot button issue. Hot button, big issue. If I think Facebook had made that acquisition. Yes. Um, so fast forward to today or basically like two weeks ago, U S Navy bans TikTok over security concerns. Um, I mean, this makes a ton of sense to me. You basically TikTok's big in the military, uh, in, in different parts of the, the defense department and it has access to your location and your GPS and all this other information about you. It's going to know, uh, oh, look, you're you're like moving around in the ocean and I can see your location and I can I can now track where your ship is. Um, that's a pretty nice little hack into saying, oh, I've got a handful of sailors on the ship that's using it. And especially if you're on an Android phone, you know, what kind of code is in the TikTok app to uh, monitor your location without maybe the explicit permission. Now, Apple's been trying to say, well, you can only access my location while I'm using the app versus always. But but you know that not everyone's really checking those permissions properly and handling all that kind of stuff. So um, basically what the uh, U.S. Navy has said here is um, users were directed to not to not install and uninstall the app TikTok from government furnished mobile devices such as iPhones and iPads. and this was made because of cyber cybersecurity threats and assessments and yada, yada, yada. The, the Navy said those who didn't delete the app would be blocked from the internet, the intranet, basically the internet. So 
I guess they have some kind some kind of code that can say, hey, does TikTok exist on this phone? If so, I'm going to block all Internet from from this phone. I'm going to, I guess, render the phone useless or not, the phone. not be able to communicate um, with the outside world, which is kind of interesting. But um, there's other examples of this, too. I didn't really want to dig too much into it because they're not platforms, which means. I don't really care too much about right, covering there's something about like map my run and uh, the data that people showing running around, like mapping out naval bases and this map kind of my stuff. run. There's uh, the DJ DJI drones, mm. which are Chinese made drones. They control two thirds of the market uh, in the U S yeah. the, the Homeland security department recently issued a directive saying we can't buy these drones anymore. DJI is trying to say we're going to make the drones in the U.S. to to placate everyone, but uh, I don't think that's going to change their fears. But um, but yeah, you know, this is there's going to be more to come on this, and um, I think there's nothing wrong with a certain level of protections around data storage requirements. Um, and uh and and some kind of tech protectionism and uh i think the u.s basically has had pretty as we were talking about yesterday on the show almost no no limits or no requirements except for specific sectors like the defense department or nuclear energy or these kinds of kind of industry specific hot button sectors um but uh We've basically been all the way on on the other side of the spectrum in terms of having none of this stuff in place. And I think you're going to slowly start to see some of it creep up on these um, case-specific circumstances, which, yeah, they make sense to me. Um, It's not like there was a small security company that was acquired by a Chinese company for like $25 million. Eh, Is anyone really going to look at that? No. Is it really going to make that? Do they have maybe a few million like security devices somewhere? Yeah, probably. But it's really on these mega things, right? Particularly these platforms that are in the U.S. achieving that winner-take-all scale, like a TikTok, like a Grinder. Um, those kinds of things, you know, makes sense to to take another look at them. Uh, closing out on our uh, Chinese trend here. Alibaba. So there's an article just this week. Alibaba is using the U.S. as a testing ground for global B2B e-commerce. I, I, this article kind of seems like a nothing burger to me. I don't really understand what it's trying to tell me. But they use these words a lot. Uh, Alibaba is positioning themselves as facilitators of buyer-supplier trust. This is where I think it all falls down, um, simply on trust. It's very clear that the environment in the U.S. and other Western uh, democratic countries are greeting these Chinese tech companies with skepticism. And some of it wrongfully so, some of it rightfully so. Now, Alibaba trying to get into B2B is saying... I need a business customer, a business buyer, a procurement buyer to go and buy stuff on Alibaba. Alibaba, I think, or in this article, they say we have 10 million buyers from outside of China. One third of them are in the United States. Here's the problem with that. If I was to guess the majority of this one third of uh, 
of buyers in the United States buying stuff off of Alibaba, I'd probably say they are buying stuff um, off of Alibaba from China to then resell onto Amazon. There's a a lot of sellers that do that. It's a booming business. It's a huge (laughs) business. Um, There's so much stuff on Amazon that's just being resold off of basically Alibaba. Um, So I would venture to guess that the majority of these Alibaba buyers in the United States are just buying, are basically just Amazon sellers. And they're just sourcing stuff off of Alibaba. The Alibaba B2B business to compete with Amazon business, the buyers that are on Amazon business and these buyers that they're talking about on Alibaba, to me, are two completely different audiences, right? A business buyer buying on Amazon business to convert that person to come and instead buy on Alibaba. I don't see it happening. Unless Alibaba changes its name. I don't think the Alibaba name in the United States for a business customer is going to win. I just, I just don't think it's a win. I just don't see these business customers where if they could go to Amazon or you could go to Alibaba and you go to your boss and your boss says, hey, Joe or Diane, Great job on this procurement order. Where'd you get it from? What a great deal. And you tell that person Alibaba business. <laughs> I don't think they're looking at you with a straight eye and saying like, excuse me, is this, is this good quality product? Is it going to get here on time? All the concerns, all the reasons that the incumbent B2B distribution industry have cited as to why Amazon business will never be successful. They're much, much more of an issue with Alibaba than with Amazon. Much yeah. more of an issue. and basically. Just 10x all of those concerns, all the traditional incumbent ways that they poo-poo a marketplace from coming into B2B. Now you apply them to Alibaba. When you have Amazon in the market and doing pretty well, actually doing very well, I would say. I just don't, yeah, I just don't see it. I just don't see it beating Amazon. Um, and what portion of the market says I'm going to go to Alibaba instead of Amazon? I just don't see it. These articles certainly don't paint it out for me. Um, yeah, they got to change their name. That's that would be step one for me. I don't think the Alibaba name helps them in the U.S. In the U.S. or in a lot of the you know, Western Europe or areas like with that. a yeah. business customer. Yep. I just yeah, I don't. I I think you got to shed that. Um, go buy some U.S. company with really strong. Brand recognition, maybe not nationally, but in Staples. In, yeah, go buy Staples. They did <laughs> the deal with Staples. Yeah. Most people aren't going to know, even if you buy Staples, they're not going to know that Alibaba owns Staples. But you have a, you have a negative stigma, I think. Um, maybe we'll go find some research on it. I think you got a big uphill battle in the business customer market, particularly. Um, for an Alibaba business to to really hit some kind of crazy demand critical mass. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, go buy staples. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. We will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.